All right, so most of you might uh, know the scripture even by heart. I don't, even though I like to think that I do. So here's what Paul says. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So, I think what we need to do before we really start looking at exactly what Paul is saying in these verses is to just kind of take a moment and talk about the things that he is not saying. Paul, he gets to this mountaintop moment of Romans 11. If you, if you read Romans 1 through 11, this is the culmination of everything that Paul wrote right here. So what he's saying here is he's not saying that God is such a mystery that we cannot know him or know anything about him. He's not saying that the things of God are far too deep for us to understand. And so can you imagine just how horrible life would be if we just did not know God or could not know God? Like that would not be a good existence because here's what we would be wondering. We'd be wondering, um, first, if, if knowledge could somehow get to us that there was a God, is he good? Is he evil? Is he just? What kind of God is he? We would have no way of knowing. So in order for man to know God at all, God needs to first reveal himself. So Paul is not saying that God has not revealed himself in any way. If you go all the way back to the beginning of Romans, in Romans 1, 19, uh, Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So man, here's the thing, is never going to be able to stand in the presence of God and say, God, I had no idea that you were there. I just didn't know. It's not fair to me. I had no idea that you were there. How could I have known uh, you didn't do anything to get my attention because here's the thing. Paul says uh, later on, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, being mankind, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And so what Paul is saying here in Romans 1, and what he ultimately says throughout the next 11 chapters, is that God is not just knowable, he is already known. And so the problem comes in the fact that man, in his fallen and sinful state, has rejected that knowledge and refuses to acknowledge their creator. And I'm glad that Mary mentioned it this morning, but it just it blows my mind that people can, can look out into the universe and see the beauty of everything that is out there and say, wow, look at that cosmic chance out there. And like, here's the, it, like it blows my mind. I was uh, listening to David Platt at uh, the Cross Conference online recently, and he was showing this picture uh, that he took, I think, when he was in Nepal. And there, there's no light pollution. So you see all these stars. You, you see all of this beauty. And, he's, and the thing that blows his mind and blows my mind, like, it's a beautiful picture because we don't, you know, the, the Christmas star that we got to see was really exciting. I, of course, missed it. I'll catch it next time. Um, <laughs> that the God of the universe puts those stars in their place. And not only does he do that, he knows them all by name. And so you have this big picture of the stars. And he's like, hey, look, there's Bob. There's Frank. And it's just amazing to think that, that those are not just there by chance. I had a student that not very long ago who said that the reason he is not a Christian is because he doesn't see evidence for God being there. And so really, all I said was just take a look around. Like, look at 
anything and realize, like, here's the thing, the facts are there. Like, it's not that the facts don't exist, it's just that man, in our sinful state, do not want to pursue those facts. So in this passage, Paul is not saying that it is impossible to know God, but what he is saying is that man who is finite or limited in their knowledge cannot know all of the things of God. We might know some things, but we don't know all things. We can comprehend a lot, but we can't comprehend everything. So what is Paul really saying in these verses? So like I said, Paul's not saying that God cannot be known because he spends 11 chapters of Romans detailing much of what can be known about God. And so if you have never read the book of Romans, it is this, this masterclass of just doctrine and truth and knowledge and logic. And I think, I, I think it was Francis Schaeffer, he once said that there were even some law schools that would use the book of Romans uh, to basically show how to build an argument. And so that's how good of a, an amazing this book of Romans is. So when we get to Romans 11, Paul cannot be saying that we can know nothing about God because he's just crafted this masterful argument that is covered with doctrinal truth. So I believe that what Paul is saying is that the Lord is incomprehensible and yet knowable, and this knowledge should ultimately push us towards awe and worship and not away from the Lord. So the doctrine in question is known as the incomprehensibility of God. And so, uh, there we go. All right, R.C. Sproul, he summarizes it pretty well. He says, the incomprehensibility of God does not mean that we know nothing about God. Rather, it means that our knowledge is partial and limited. Falling short of a total or comprehensive knowledge, the knowledge that God gives of himself through revelation is both real and useful. We can know God to the degree, or to the degree that he chooses to reveal himself. The finite cannot grasp the infinite, but the finite can never hold the infinite. Or no, I'm sorry, the finite can grasp the infinite, but the finite can never hold the infinite within its grasp. So what Paul is doing in these verses is that he, he's reached this mountaintop of gospel truth. He's so overwhelmed with all. Like he, he's just said all of this. Like I wish we could have gone through all 11 chapters to get to this point. Um, he gets to this moment, and the only thing that he can say is, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. I have a dream. I'll let you in on it. I have a dream of one day being able to preach the, the whole book of Romans somewhere. I don't know if it's here or if it's going to be, you know, Uganda or something like that. But I will say if that day ever comes, it's going to be a very interesting 10 years. And so there's just so much about God that is packed into this book of Romans. There's so much stuff in this book that uh, it is easy for people to feel overwhelmed. Uh, there's, I actually have coming in, hopefully, depending on the postal service, um, a very decent-sized volume of Martin Lloyd-Jones' Roman series. I think it's like 14 volumes just on one book. And so that's a lot of knowledge. Now imagine all of this knowledge and all this truth uh, for the entire Bible. Like, that is a lot of information. So it can be easy to, to feel overwhelmed. And so what Martin Luther writes, he says that this exclamation of the apostle is to remind us of the fact that in the conclusion stated above, so all of Romans, there is still something which is hidden and too deep for us to understand. So what does this really mean? Paul, knowing what he knows of himself and knowing what he knows of the Lord, cannot help but praise the Lord here. Paul is overwhelmed by grace. He's overwhelmed by mercy and, and he is just amazed at the love that the Lord has shown to those that have fallen so far from him. So Paul, he has a general understanding of these things because he's written 
so many verses that have shown that he does understand a lot of these things, but he does not fully grasp all of it. He can't grasp all of it because God is God and we are not. So as we come into the presence of God, we're coming into the presence of someone that our brain cannot fully comprehend. So there's a reason why the very first thing out of Isaiah's mouth when he has this vision of the Lord is, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, he comes into the Lord's presence, and he's just lost for words. He doesn't know what really to say. He just knows that, that, that he knows who he is, but he really does not fully grasp all that the Lord is. And so if we, uh, basically what he's saying is that he's saying that I've seen the king, I've seen the beauty of the Lord, I've seen his greatness, and what could I say to this? Even John in the book of Revelation, he throws himself down in worship, and this is because of the one that he is in the presence of. So to stand before God, to be in his presence, to try and grasp in our little minds all that he is, is just not possible. We cannot comprehend everything that he has done, everything that he will do, everything that he's doing right now. I think John Piper, he once said that uh, God is doing a million and one things in our lives right now, and we might be aware of like three of them. And so Paul, like here's the thing, our inability to know everything about the Lord That does not discourage Paul in the slightest, but he sees it as the springboard that leads to worship. God wants you, he wants me to be in awe of him. God does not want us to look at him like we we look at at somebody else. He wants us to look at him and to be blown away at what we see. Paul is encouraged by the all-knowing God of the universe, and he feels comfortable being little in the hands of God of a big God. So while we may not know all things, we can be encouraged because we know the one who does know all things. So we learn a lot here in verse 33 about the Lord. We learn that there's a depth in his riches, his wisdom and his knowledge. And so uh, John Piper, he said that the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God are described here as indescribably deep. Oh, the depth means the depth is very deep. It is so deep that it simply elicits from the inspired apostle as he peers into the ravine of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge, an undefined O, the deeps here are indescribably deep. God is the creator of all things, and therefore he owns all things. Deuteronomy 10.14 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. God possesses all things, and all things belong to him. Because he's creator, that means that his resources are unlimited. In Genesis 1, we read that he created all things out of nothing. He didn't go to space Ikea to get all of the pieces together to build what he was about to do. He just speaks it into existence. He creates out of nothing the things that are. And he can do this effortlessly because he is God and his riches are limitless. Ultimately, God is the ultimate and infinite treasure of the universe. Outside of him, we know that there's nothing else to gain, nothing else to to get. He stands before all things and above all things. The Bible says he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and he has freely given himself to us. He does not just give treasures to man, he is the ultimate treasure. And in Colossians 1.27, Paul refers to the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I said it um, uh, probably a couple of months ago, that if you do not have Jesus, 
then you really do not have anything of eternal value. Outside of him, all the treasures that you have in life will fade away. Either you will pass away or they will. It's not a matter of if, it is just a matter of when. So Paul, he's amazed at the depths of God's knowledge and wisdom. God knows all recorded facts. He knows everything from from the microscopic to the macroscopic level. He knows all things that have happened here on earth and all things that have happened at the farthest possible point of the universe. He knows everything past, present, and future. Going back to John Piper again, he says he knows every event that has ever happened and ever will happen at every level of existence, physical, mental, volitional. And he knows how all facts and all events of every kind relate to each other and affect each other. When one event happens, he not only sees it, but he sees the eternal chain of effects that flow from it and from all the billions of events that are unleashed by every other event. He knows all this without the slightest strain on his mind. That is what it means to be God. But not only does God know everything, he knows how to carry out every plan perfectly so that all things come to pass according to his will. That's the difference right there between uh, when Paul mentions the knowledge and the wisdom of God. Knowledge can be facts, but wisdom is what to do with those facts. And so here's what we know. He knows how to carry out every plan perfectly. He knows how to use all the facts in the universe and all the events in the universe to display the fullness of his glory. So this is what we can ultimately gather from this. Everything that is, everything that was, and everything that will be ultimately exists to point us to the one who knows all things, created all things, and sustains all things. So how do we comprehend a statement like that? That the God who knows all things, plans all things, says amazing things, sustains all things, will use all things for his glory. How do we comprehend that? And the thing is, I don't think that we can, or at least not yet. Like we've said a few times, he is infinite, and yet we are finite. And so John Calvin, I think he had a way of saying it basically like this, that, and, and he didn't, doesn't mean it in a bad way, that God speaks to us almost as if like through baby talk. And so what that means is, you know, we can kind of see that as a negative, is that the Lord speaks to us in ways that, that we can understand and to a level that we are able to uh, comprehend. So here's the thing. I'm going to have a two-year-old in less than a week. And so Benji is incredibly smart, smarter than I am, and he understands a lot of things. So if I say, Benji, go into your room and grab Spider-Man, he knows what that means. He definitely knows if I say, do you want to watch Mickey Mouse? He knows exactly what, here's the thing. He knows how to uh, get on Laura's phone, go to Disney Plus, and start playing Moana. Like, I don't know how, but he does. And so if I tell him to go do that, he knows how to do that. He understands it because it's on his level. But if I say something like, Benji, I want you to grab a a pencil and some paper from the third shelf on the left of the kitchen and a house at this address in Wisconsin, and I want you to write out the quadratic formula for me, he's going to just stare at me, right? Because he's not going to understand that because he's a kid and he physically cannot comprehend or fully understand what that request is for. So no one's going to blame the child for not being able to understand that, and I don't think anyone's going to expect a parent to, give the, to have that make sense for their two-year-old. So why do we think that God owes us an explanation to every little thing? We wouldn't expect a parent to tell their child every little known fact in the universe, so why would we expect God, who knows all things, to tell us every little known fact in the universe? Have you noticed how uh, God has already told you everything that we need to know in order to have a relationship with him? 
Like, he doesn't leave that, that important piece of information. Everything that we need to know to glorify God, he has made known to us. The most important piece of information on all of time and space is readily available and is not overly complicated. Did you know that when it comes to salvation, you can summarize salvation in 10 words, and seven of those words are less than five letters long? Paul does it in Acts 16.31 when he says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Everything that we truly need to know in order to know God, God has already made known. One Wednesday night a couple of months ago, I forget exactly what uh, we were talking about, but I remember saying that it was okay for us to not have all the answers right now to all of the questions. And so uh, I told the kids, imagine this, this scenario where you're a child and it's, uh, you know, you're in your bedroom at night, it's dark and stormy, the, the light in your be- on your little nightlight's getting ready to flicker out. Uh, there's that big scary branch that's like, kind of looks like a hook tapping up on the window. Uh, you know, you're pretty sure there's a monster under your bed and you are absolutely terrified. So I asked them, what would help you more in this moment? To scientifically know why everything is happening in that moment the way that it is. Like, and so remember, as a child, would it really help you to know that like, the lightning is just a bunch of you know, pieces of ice that are being charged, and you know, there's this you know, positive, and there's a negative, and there's a you know, boom, rain involves the water cycle, and then the thunders, angels bowling. Does that really help us to know? Is that the best way to calm a child? Or is it more beneficial for your father to come into the room, the father that loves you more than anything, to come and say, don't be afraid I'm here. Realistically, as a child, you would probably say that it's better for your loving father to be there with you. And that right there is what we have with the Lord. But here's the beauty of this. Right now, where we are at, we have the presence of the Lord with us. We know he's there, that he loves us. But imagine this, that as your father was there holding you in the midst of the storm, he says, not only am I here, but I am going to explain to you how all of this works in the morning. All you have to do is trust me until then. See, that is what we have to look forward to with Christ. We have his presence now, but we will also be in his presence forever. And one day, every question for every answer that you're searching for, he is going to make known. So Paul, he's writing these words. He's rejoicing in things that are not yet seen. One of the beauties of the Lord being all-knowing is the fact that he knows you. Not only does he know you personally and intimately, he knows you better than you know yourself. So for, for, for a second... Uh, think of all the things that you do that you don't like about yourself. Hopefully it's a short list. For me, I think it's probably a pretty long list. Think about all of those things and realize that the Lord knows all about them. He knew about them before you knew about them, and yet that did not stop him from loving you. Those things that you hate about yourself has not discouraged the Lord in the slightest from desiring to have a relationship with you. God knows you deeply and he loves you deeply. So Herman Bavink, he said that according to scripture, God is incomprehensible yet knowable, absolute and yet personal. Don't think that just because the Lord knows all things that you are not significant. We serve a God that is above us in so many ways and yet he's not so far above us that he does not want a relationship with us and that we cannot have a relationship with him. We can rejoice in knowing that the God who knows all things knows us better than we know ourselves and desires that relationship with us. So God is infinitely greater than what we can imagine. To know Jesus Christ, and I don't mean just head knowledge, or, you know, a lot, a lot of religions will say that Jesus existed, but they don't say who he really is. To truly know Jesus, we know is the most important fact in the world. Think for a second who we are in 
Christ. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So what we read here, God is our Father. We are uh, co-heirs with Christ. And as we suffer on this earth, we're reminded of the fact that we will see him in glory and not just see his glory, we will be glorified with him. This reminds us that as, as God the Father loves the Son, he also loves us. That perfect love and his perfect knowledge leads us to the same answer that Paul has in chapter 11, to him be the glory forever. See, we were made to know the one who knows all things. Tim Keller said that uh, we were designed to know, serve, and love God supremely. And when we are faithful to that design, we flourish. To know God is what we were all made for. That is our purpose, to know God. The Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism is known for its opening question. Uh, And so if you don't know what a catechism is, basically it's just a way of teaching uh, gospel truths or the Bible truths to uh, new Christians. And so the catechism, it's the first question It asks, what is the chief end of man? What is man's purpose? And the answer to that, and I think it's a very good answer, is that the chief end of man, the purpose of man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So God is infinite, we are finite, and sometimes that can be discouraging. But we can have hope, just as Paul did. So what are the things that we can be sure of? What is one of the greatest encouragements that we can have in the face of uncertainty, of mystery, and life in general that we find in this passage. If we go uh, back to verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. In this verse, we're reminded of three great things. That God in his majesty is infinitely sovereign. He is sovereignly active over all things and he shall remain infinitely glorious. Romans 11.36, is, it's almost the uh, New Testament equivalent of what God says to Moses when, God, or when Moses asks God what his name is. The I am who I am. This verse reminds us that who God is, he has always been and he always will be. He is always God and he has never and will never give up that authority. He holds all things in his hands and he is over all things. He sees all, he knows all, and he will be glorified. We know that nothing in Heaven and nothing on earth will stop God. There's not a single thing that he is unaware of. Nothing escapes his sight. He is all-knowing. So here's the thing, and this is why we're going to preach, I wanted to preach on this today. Ultimately, we do not know what the future is going to bring. I've heard a lot of people say, you know, even like last week, if we can just get to 2021, everything is going to be better. And the, real, the realistic thing, and Wayne's kind of already touched on today, is like, we don't know that. Things could be substantially worse. I'm not going to jinx it. Uh, but things could be worse. Happy New Year. <laughs> but here's the thing. We don't know, do we? There's really no way of knowing. We, we, we see that there might be a light at the end of the tunnel for this pandemic. We're hoping that there is. But even that is not promised. Here's the thing. Life really is a mystery. 
And yet, despite these things, there are things that we can know with absolute certainty. And so here's what we know. We know that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know that uh, before he created, nothing was made, that, that, that he made man in his image, that he created everything from nothing. At some point in, in space-time history, we know that man rebelled against God and fell under the curse of sin. But God does not leave man without a hope of future redemption. God promised a Savior all the way back in Genesis 3 that would take the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin, and whoever placed their faith in him would have everlasting life. So for centuries, prophets looked ahead to this coming king that would bring the people back. And this king would not be like any other king. He would be God himself. But this king did not come in power. He came in humility. Paul says in Galatians 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as son. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. He was perfect in every way, and yet he was put to death on a cross where he, observed, or he, he, he absorbed the full weight of the penalty that was for my sin. But we know that death was not strong enough to hold him there because one of the most well-documented facts in all of human history is that the tomb that he was put in is now empty. Like, I, like, I just think, I'm looking forward to the summer because we're going to be doing apologetics for, for YC. And I'm looking forward to just talking for like three weeks of all of the evidence of the fact that, hey, Jesus really did rise from the dead. And so I wish we had the time to do that today, but we don't. I'll give you something to look forward to. Come to YC uh, in July or come this Wednesday. This moment changes the course of all human history. Up to this point, all of history was heading towards that moment. And now all of the future in history right now is heading towards the moment where he returns. This is what we know. And Paul says a few verses, two verses later, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We may not know what this year may bring, but we can know with confidence the one that does. We can know with certainty that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning over all things and nothing is going to stand in his way. We know that for all that confess Christ is Lord, they will be saved despite what they have done. Every star in the sky is a testimony to his glory. Every tear is a reminder that, that one day there's not going to be any more tears. All the love that we have right now is a reminder and points ahead to the greatest love in the universe. And every laugh is the reminder of the joy that we can have in Christ. And so we know that, that one day every crime will be punished by the Lord. Every moment that, that we have right now of love, it points us to the day when we are fully embraced by Jesus in heaven with him. We know that one day he will return. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said that God's infinity suggests to us that he is the cause of everything else. All existence, all being derives from him. His infinity also reminds us that he is free from all restrictions and all bounds. There is no limitation whatsoever where God is concerned. He is everything, everywhere, unlimited. Or perhaps the best way of thinking of it is, is this. The exaltedness of God, the sublimity of God, the ineffable majesty of God, or the transcendence of God, above and beyond everything, I am what I am. So we cannot even begin 
to put this truth into the words. All we can really say with Paul is, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So the thing we have to ask is, do we know him? Do we know the Lord? And my prayer is that we all do. May we come into the presence and may we come to know the one who knows and reveals all. So, the Lord does not have to be a mystery. I, uh, you know, going back to, to D.B. Cooper, uh, there's a, uh, it was a really good documentary that I just watched recently on him. And throughout the documentary, there's a number of people who are all so convinced that they know who D.B. Cooper is. Some people are like, yeah, he's, he was my dad. He was my, my uncle, my favorite one. Uh, <laughs> they were like, yeah, D.B. Cooper was the first person in, I think, Seattle to get a sex change. So D.B. Cooper is now a woman, and she came here and lived with us for a little bit. And it's like all of these people, here's the sad thing, they're all so convinced that that is the truth. They are so convinced that they know exactly who he is or who he was, and yet not all of them can be right. Cooper is a mystery that we are never probably going to find an answer to, but we can find answers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, he knows who he is. So I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we're going to pray that as we go into the new year, that our knowledge and love for the Lord only grows stronger. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we are so grateful that even though life can seem like such a mystery, that you and your infinite goodness and grace have revealed yourself to us. I'm so thankful, Lord, that it is possible to know you, and not just to know you, but to have the knowledge that you know us and that you love us. So, Lord, as we go into this new year, may we only grow to love you stronger and to know you better. And it's in Jesus' name, amen.